Level four of podcast recordings achieved. I'm Rob Beeler, and I'm having fun calling up people, hitting record, and talking digital media and advertising. I like to think of it as a quest, a quest to understand what's next. There's a lot going on, and I like to call people who have some great perspectives to share with you. Today, it's Walter Knapp, CEO of Sovereign. No, this isn't a sponsored webcast. What I know is that every time I talk to Walter, I learn something new. Sovereign has made some interesting acquisitions for an exchange slash SSP, and so I wanted him to elaborate on what they are thinking. How about this? Let's just start. It's time for BeelerCast. All right, I'm here with Walter Knapp. Walter, it's great to catch up with you. Where where are you at these days? Where 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 have you been in 2020 for the most time? Hey, Rob, thanks for having me. We have closed all of our offices. We did that in early March. So I have been working from home here in Boulder, Colorado, which is where our headquarters is anyway. But I've been working here from home in, in my sort of what was a, a bike room where I have all my bikes and stuff, but now is a, is a converted home office. So I've been here for the last however many, you know, seven months. Yes. Yeah. I think a lot of people had to suddenly reassess their house, what the whole setup was, and start to rearrange these last last number of months to just try to figure out a, a spot with which to do work. So yeah. one reason, Walter, I, I reached out to to have you as a, as a guest of my podcast, and thanks for, for making the time, is in part like a long-running conversation I've had with you, because as sovereign, which is known as, a, as an SSP, you've made some interesting moves, interesting acquisitions, and interesting messaging, if you will, out in the space. And I, you know, so I look at the acquisitions, right? Something like on scroll, big link, even optimal, which, you know, to generalize, because it was a little bit more than this is like an ad blocking solution, right? Which, you know, most ad tech companies don't go out and buy ad blocking solutions to add to their portfolio of offerings, right? It seems counterintuitive. And so I think that there's an aspect, Walter, of of trying to understand or, or learn from you about what drives you in terms of where you've placed your bets and how you're looking forward to the future and, and working with publishers. Yeah. Well, that's a, no, it's a good opening. And, and, and you're right. Like we've had Robert Kevin's conversations going back a number of years. And, and one of the things you picked up on, which hope we'll, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about is we've been, we've been acquisitive for the last five years, we've done a number of deals. One, you know, there's there's one in there that you didn't mention, which is we acquired all the uh, content distribution technologies from a from a really interesting company called Zamanta. If you remember Zamanta, and that one probably goes down as the one the one that got away. I think I was probably a little overzealous in in the thesis behind that one. But if you if you go back to the beginning, so we started Sovereign in January of 2014, and the name is obviously misspelled. You know, it's it's hard to come by a five-letter domain name these days. Um, <laughs> no, but it, in all seriousness, I had built an interesting company a number of years prior in the media space, and then I'd sold that business to Federated Media. The Federated Media experiment, I think, we you know, was an interesting one, yet you know, I, I, I sort of came to the, the conclusion that I thought federated media and the 
in the planet was pursuing was not was not what where I thought you know the big opportunities were. And so we sold the federated media business off in late 2013, and we sold it for a fair amount of money. And one of the options that we had was to take that money and return it to our investors. They they would have gotten you know a portion of their investment back, but not all mm. of it. And I presented them an alternative plan where I said, "Hey, look, I've been I've been in the media business for you know for nearly a decade. I've been studying it for longer than that, and I have an idea to create a business, and I want to call it Sovereign. And our investors gave me that opportunity. They you know they said, "Hey, we're not gonna we're not gonna take the proceeds back from Federated Media and call it a day. We're essentially gonna re up." on Walter and this idea. And so in January of 2014, I started Sovereign. So I I have a sort of fundamental belief, which is that every interesting company solves important problems for someone else. And what I saw in my first decade of working in the media business, this is sort of post-dot-com bubble bursting, but there was this incredible surge in online usage, the rise of social media, the democratization of publishing, the rise of weblogging. Like all of this stuff sort of happened in the early 2000s, if you remember. Like, you know, uh, the iPhone launched in 2007, Twitter came out in 2006, Facebook came off of college campuses, Matt Mullenweg launched WordPress, Ben and Mina Trot launched TypePad. And you sort of walk, and there were many companies that were started in that sort of same category, along with one that I helped build and, and sell to Federated Media. And but my idea around Sovereign, and then I'll then I'll pause for a second. But my my idea around Sovereign was around the notion of independence, and the idea was: could you help publishers or, or creators, makers? Could you help them control their own destiny? do the things that they wanted to do, accomplish the goals that were important to them, that gave them meaning? Could you help them be and remain independent? And that's where I sort of landed on the idea of sovereign. And it informs a lot of what we hope, what I hope we'll get to in terms of the investments we've made, the acquisitions we've made, the, the sort of moves that were, you know, that we were, uh, maybe I'll give you some insight into kind of where we're going but you know that that that's sort of the the basic thinking behind behind the name and behind what we do. Got it. And and that is independence, not from Google or Facebook. It's that, that which is obviously a, a new wave. Everyone talking about uh, moving away necessarily from them, but just what I what I hear. And again, make sure I've, I've got the nuance there. It's publishing should be a viable business model. You should be able to create content and there's a model for it to, to make money so that you continue to do that. Right. I think that's ultimately what we're trying to get to. That's right. That's right. It's, it's, you get to do what you want to do. You get to control your own destiny. You get to invest in the things that add long-term value, which is namely like building, I think, you know, building great relationships with your visitor base and if if we can if no one's really ever done this, but if you can build a company that helps other people accomplish those goals, we think you can build a billion dollar business. And you know that's that's what we're trying to do. Very cool, very cool. So, so how does and and I love the the mantra, and I think it's something that you know anyone can apply that and think about that in terms of of building a business to help others accomplish their their goals. 
So it, with the publishing, where do, where do you start with that? And, and then how does that play into some of the moves that you've made in terms of, of these acquisitions as well as other, other things that you've done in terms of rolling out? Yeah. So, so an interesting thing, like, you know, if you, if you look back upon it here, now we are five and a half years later, you, you know, you mentioned, maybe you mentioned, I think in the outset, like most people know us as an SSP or a very large advertising exchange. And I think most people would probably be surprised to know that that's only about a third of our overall revenues. Mm. So, so said another way, two thirds of our revenues do not come from running an SSP or an exchange, although it is very large. It's in, in the way we think about it is this. So, if you're if you're a publisher, you dating back for you know, literally hundreds of years, you you essentially have two vectors to your business model. One of those vectors is, hey, I've created an asset. I've recorded a video or I've recorded a podcast or I've written an article or a book or something like that. And people people find it interesting, entertaining, something that they want to spend time with. And so this is where your your business model sort of has their their sort of two branches of the tree. One branch is I'm I'm not going to let you watch or listen to or read that thing unless you pay me. This mm-hmm. is sort of, you know, this you refer to as a subscription model and I hope we'll get a chance to talk about memberships because I think that's a new sort of interesting twist on the and 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 very different than I think the straight up subscription model, but the the first vector of a tree is pay me and then I will let you access what I've created. The second vector of the tree is I'm going to give away whatever I've created and then I'm going to capture some sort of adjacent value. And this is the, you know, the advertising model is on this branch. So is the affiliate or e-commerce model. So is, you know, this is why venture capitalists blog. They, you know, they, they write content, not because they're hoping to, you know, make a few bucks through the Amazon associates program when they recommend a book to read. They do it because they want to attract smart entrepreneurs to, so they can access deal flow. They consultants oftentimes will will create content, research reports, what have you, not because they want to charge you money for it, because they want you to hire them. So there's this whole branch of the tree is, hey, I'm going to give my content away, and some, you know some other value will underwrite that. This, so this is the advertising model, right? I'm going to give my content away, and advertisers want to get associated with the people that I've attracted, and they're willing to pay me some money for that. And so, so those are the sort of two broad vectors, I think. And they have been, like I said, around for hundreds of years. And I don't think the, the media business actually necessarily sort of fundamentally changes. It's just, you know, sort of which, which branch do you, do you bias yourself or do you balance the multiple branches? Yeah, which is, you're right. Fundamentally, they, they remain the same. And they're not even, you don't have to choose one or the other. It's obviously a matter of, of combining the two, right? I, I think there's there's an aspect where as much as people have pushback on advertising, it's it's a hard model to get away from. And at the same time, it could be done better. Right. And so maybe well, let's talk, yeah. let's talk about those two spokes, right? Let's talk about the adjacent value proposition in terms of again, you work with a lot of publishers of of varying size, right? So it's not just small, you work with major, yeah. major publishers and in, in that spans. They're all trying to do that adjacent value efficiently. 
e-commerce yeah. affiliate programs, advertising, and so forth. And where are the areas to which you are exploring or they should be exploring that can grow that particular vector? Because then I want to circle back to the membership piece, which I think is such a key key phrase yeah. to, to focus on. Yeah. yeah. So you're, you're right. We oftentimes, I think, if I, if I listen to what people think about us, they, they will say, hey, you, you, Sovereign, you guys, you know, mostly work with mid and, mid and long tail publishers. And when the reality is we actually don't discriminate. So we work with very small publishers, lots of mid-size publishers. And you're right, we work with many of the largest publishers in the world, all household brand names. And we, and we did that intentionally. I, I will say, which I think, and then I'll sort of dive specifically into one of the points you brought up. But when I when I started the company, there were two basic things that I needed to invest in if I wanted to build truly a platform business to service publishers. Those two things, I, so I've since... So since January of 2014, I've raised about $50 million. The good news is we still have a, a decent size, you know, nest egg of cash and we're profitable and growing nicely, which has been great. But the, the two major investments I made in the early days and continue to this day, which are incredibly expensive and take very long periods of time. One is the, is the platform itself. And so the platform itself, lots of people say they say they're platform companies, but I'll, I'll Talk literally, it's about a thing that you can build upon, and it gets to the acquisitions we've made. So we always had an eye to acquiring other interesting businesses and putting them on top of the platform, which means you have to create a platform. So you have to have a robust delivery infrastructure so that you can reach any consumer anywhere in the world. And so you have to have the delivery infrastructure, not just for advertising, but for any any product or service you might offer. At, a, at extreme low latency, you know, no matter where the reader is. The platform also has to have reporting capabilities, earnings management, all the sort of UI components that you would have. So like you mentioned, we, you know, we bought a company called Viglink a little less than two years ago, and we were able to integrate that onto the platform and almost double that business in the first 12 months that we, that we owned it. And that's a testament to building a platform. By the way, building a platform is an incredibly expensive and, and technically challenging thing to do. It's um, an easy word to say. It's an easy phrase yeah. to throw out, but it's a little bit harder to actually do. Agreed. That's right. That's right. And the second piece that we built, which I think it's even easier to say and even harder to do, is we built everything on the notion of a data collective or a data cooperative. And this is an opt-in for publishers, but what it does is it combines all of the all of the data and information of all of the content and consumers and purchase behavior and advertising behavior, what have you, across today many tens of thousands of websites, including some of the largest websites in the world, also including really interesting niche websites, mid-sized websites. And so all of that, building that data cooperative is incredibly expensive and incredibly difficult. But those were the two major components that we've we've been building that are sort of less glamorous, less understood by people. Our first acquisition, so we, 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 we built an SSP or ad exchange. 
we had an, we've, we've got an analytics offering that I think you're going to see some really interesting things coming out of in the next year. But our first acquisition that we made, and I hope we'll pause and talk about this a little bit, but the first acquisition we made was a, a company in London that started out under the name of Metric Science. And they changed the name to OnScroll right before we, we bought them. But the reason I mentioned the original name Metric Science is because what that technology behind the company fundamentally was, is it tracks reader engagement, time spent, mm-hmm. scroll speed, scroll depth, mouse movements. And, and so that was, the, that was the very first acquisition we made. It's, it, um, and it's an, it's an important product and technology that I hope we'll have a chance to get into. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing I, and again, we'll, we'll dive into it and take our, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. One thing that you said that makes me think about the future, especially around data, is if you talk about, again, that perception of where sovereign is strong, if, of that small to mid-tail, there's a, there's a piece of that that I think will serve you well. And what I mean by that is as we head into 2022, and if there is the death of the third party cookie and and everything we know about how that might play out, we're going to have to figure out how small data segments and small, very niche content works because advertisers are going to want that. They're going to want that level of depth. And the scale isn't necessarily going to be there. There's going to be the big players and there's going to be a lot of small players. And I think that there's a, a part of having, trying to solve that problem over the past years and solving it going into <laughs> this next year and so forth is, is something that I don't think enough people are focused on. It's something I've talked about at, at a number of things about like micro segments and, and just this idea that we, we, we seem to always talk about scale around data. And you need it. And at the same time, we're going to have to solve to make it much more efficient for smaller scale things to work. So I don't know if you want to pursue that particular direction. Well, I mean, like, so it's an interesting, so there's a bunch of interesting stuff in there. Like when I look at what's going on, there's two, two sort of like broad categories for me. The, the, there, there is a sort of a regulatory wave that started with the GDPR it's also existing in California with the California legislation, but like I've, I've spoken with the, the Colorado attorney general and the governor about this here, just because that's my, you know, that it's the state where I happen to live and, you know, I've had those opportunities, but there's clearly, I think now there are 14 states in the U S now that are looking at similar legislation as California, which to me tells me that the U S is effectively going to tip at some point and become much more GDPR like in the way that they treat opt-ins as a, you know, as the default, you have to default, you have to, you have to declare an opt-in for data collection rather than an opt-out, which is the way it currently works. And so, so that's sort of broadly going on. And I think that's, that, that, that is my hunch is that's likely to continue. You then got the what I'll call de facto regulatory, which is the you know the large browser manufacturers and device mm-hmm. phone operating system, you know the phone OS companies, Google and, and Apple, making decisions to limit third-party tracking and certainly cross-site tracking. 
And so the, the, where, those, where those things sort of, where, where those two broad things manifest is in the ability to address consumers and the ability to measure the effects of that addressability. So you're right. I think like the, there's a bunch of activity around around addressability. So the ad the ad industry, by and large, at least the you know all the companies seem to be focused on addressability. I think there is a little bit less focus on on measurement in the ad industry. That seems to be pushed to the industry standards bodies like the W3C. We pay very close attention to this. I think the measurement will actually get resolved. I think either the browsers will will have measurement hooks so that you can measure, you know, the effectiveness of advertising. I don't know that the addressability issue is going to be Mm. solved. So I think it will be when consumers declare that, yes, hey, you can track and you can address me with, you know, personalized advertising. But here's the interesting stat. So right now, what we're seeing in in Europe is, is sort of a likely precursor to what I think we'll see you know, as it sort of expands to the U.S. And you see somewhere around 20% of people have said, hey, like, I'm, I'm okay with addressable or personalized advertising. So 80% have not. <laughs> so, right. So, right. So, right. So, and, and so one of the things that I think about is we look at what are all the ways that addressability can do- be done, and you see lots of people trying to do this. We're now tracking, I think, 28 different identity mechanisms, whether, I mean, running the gap from IAB's Project REARC to the Trade Desk to LiveRamp, Live Intent, ID5, you know, like there's there's somewhere around 28 different identification schemes. And there's a lot of commonalities between them. We see very few people or companies focusing on the 80% of people that are likely to be difficult to address. And we think, so we, you know, we, we think there's opportunities on both sides. And I, and I think we actually have a strong play on the 80% side. And I can talk a little bit about that, yeah. um, but largely it comes down to, and, 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 and if, if you really, I mean, I don't know if your listeners will think about this, but like I've been thinking about this for a while and it informs two of the four acquisitions that we've done was because I was thinking about where does this go back in 2015 and placing bets back then. And so, you know, maybe I'll be right. And people will think that's really smart at the time. I think people thought I was a little bit nuts, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) but I was like, I was just basically, I mean, if you think about it, you're just following the thread of the idea and you, you keep asking and then what? And then what happens? And then what happens? And so, yeah, that's, I mean, that, and that's largely why I, I we acquired OnScroll. And it's certainly, uh, you know, a big piece of why we acquired BigLink. And I think in the, on the engagement front, right, because that's, that helps explain a publisher's value, you know, and their connection with their audience to an advertiser. Right. I think that, that that's a, and it's a different conversation to have to talk about engagement than it is to say clicks to just the tonnage of programmatic is to actually say, we connected, we connect with our audience and this advertising connect with it as well, which I think is, is interesting. And that's the, the signal product, correct? Is that the, uh, yeah. So if you think about like, I mean, like, one of us as a human being has some things that are very personal to us in, in you know, like 
obviously in the, in the online advertising arena, I'm sure all of your listeners will know exactly who the ad exchanger is. I like to point out that the ad exchanger is a long tail site. Um, <laughs> and what's, what's, you know, and, but, but so is, you know, Velo News, so is Bicycling Magazine, so is Yoga Journal, so is, you know, Dwell. These are long tail sites, you know, or, you know, medium tail at, at the best. And, and what's beautiful about the internet is it enables these niche sites to reach people that are interested in that content anywhere in the world and can generate huge audiences. But the content is highly specific. And when content is highly specific, you know it because people spend time with it. They find value in it. And the, and the, and the only thing they're not making any more of is time. It is literally like that fixed thing. And I think like, and I hate to lay the, the blame at the foot of Wired Magazine, but Wired Magazine with AT&T as a co-conspirator, when they ran the first banner ad, right, <laughs> essentially committed the original sin of the Internet, which was, <laughs> to, which was not to tie advertising to the notion of time. They did, which is totally, I mean, like, we, we, all the tack lends itself to this. But we didn't do that. We did the laziest thing, which was, hey, we're just going to serve a lot of impressions. And the impressions had literally no temporal aspect to them. And, and for many years, it had no viewability aspect to them. So this is what, like, you know, you just, you want to make more money? Just put more ads on your page, right? Put right. them below the fold. I've seen sites that scroll to the right infinitely with lots of medium rectangles, right? And or people were running ads stacked on top of ad on top of ad, which is like, you know, it, this the, the notion of the impression with no temporal aspect, no viewability aspect in the early days drove what I think is a complete bastardization of how online advertising should be done. And so the thing, you know, that I focused in on was what is the quantifiable thing that proves a piece of content has value? And it's the amount of time people spend with it. More people spending more time with your content is essentially your direct proxy for value. And, and you know, obviously there's nuances for what type of content, what type of person, things like that. But like, that's the fundamental thing. And when I looked at, I was, I was looking around going, geez, I, I like, this is a huge deal. And so in, in late 2014, I flew to London, identified an interesting company called Met, that started out called Metric Science that was tracking time spent with content, whether it's on a desktop or mobile device, didn't matter. And the company was just kind of starting off. I, I happened to know the, the lead investor, a guy named Andy Evans. And I'd known Andy for years. And I bought his company. That's a, it has been a phenomenal investment for us. You're right. It's our signal product. It's, we're turning it into a licensable technology. So publishers are now licensing that. They can use that. It essentially casts off all kinds of events. So mouse movements, time on site, it has viewability measures, scroll speed, scroll depth, things like that. It knows when the tab goes inactive. It knows when the tab becomes active again. And what publishers are using it for is many different use cases, certainly advertising. So people use it to reload ads if they've been you know, in view for a period of time. That's like an easy use case. But what we're seeing is people are using it, publishers are using it to, when should I prompt 
for a subscription event. And when they do that, our early data suggests that there's a between a two and three hundred percent increase in the number of signups that we'll get. It, people are using it for, hey, these these articles or these videos that I've created are actually attracting more consumers, spending more time. Therefore, they're more valuable. The advertisements on those pages should be should be charged more for. They're using those to feed their recommendation related content algorithms driving the content that goes in newsletters, driving the content that comes in if people sign up for notifications. And so there's you know a whole bunch of use cases that that people are using that that time spent engagement technology for. And and then I'll then I'll pause for a second, but and we're seeing really large publishers. So these are, you know, I, I don't know that I'm at liberty to say that like one of them covers presidential debates and has three letters in their name. <laughs> and so their, their interest in using this is because they want to know what content resonates so that they can build profiles that are contextual. So they know what the content's about, but they, you know, what content is not only what is it about, but what is resonating with consumers. And I can create sort of pools of my inventory for the 80% of people that I might not be able to address in what it, when and if addressable advertising comes under, you know, and I, I can't do it anymore. So that acquisition that we made, like, we, again, we spotted that in late 2014, closed, closed on it in early 2015. That is, I think, our fastest growing area of our business right now. And it's, yeah, to me, it's been a good one. Very cool. Yeah. And you make me think that I'm going to have to get Andy Evans on this podcast. I'm going to have to uh, prepare myself for the for the the force that is Andy Evans. So that this yeah. is the first mention of Andy Evans. I'm sure there will be there will be others. The Andy, Andy's done a number of different companies. He's been in the space as long or longer than I have, and he's just a wonderful human being. Absolutely, a hundred percent. I just have to bust chops if and when I get a chance <laughs> to bust Andy's chops. The so there you hit out a number of pieces, and again, I what I. I have been in search of, and and I think you hit on it, has been that aspect of time because we need to have a new relationship with our consumers. You mentioned regulation. You mentioned the browsers. People are not going to go away from the internet. It's a part of our lives. It's It's there. And so if we create content, people will come. Discoverability, there's there's all lots of issues as to what size you can get to, but the fact is that people want to consume great content. So great, do great things, they'll they'll find it and you can have a business around it. And it's that time element which I think helps with the advertising. But you you kind of hit on something again that I've been thinking a lot about is that relationship with the user to knowing when to ask that question. Do we have a relationship, right? right? Can that evolve? I'm going to serve you ads until unless you stop me, at which point I'm going to ask you to allow me to, but can't we do more? And I think that there's been no better time, in fact, because of the pandemic, where you can, as a publisher, say, here's my value proposition to you. Let's start talking and evolving this conversation, which is, I, I kind of want you to address kind of what I'm talking to here with an eye toward 
membership, which is not a term I typically use when I'm talking to publishers. I'm talking about subscriptions slash paywalls, but you use membership. And I and I don't want to end this podcast until we get to membership because I think yeah. that's an evolutionary thought I have not thought about. So please. Yeah, yeah. So so if you think about, I mean, like if you, if you, if you just zoom out for a second and you think about what is the publisher's business, the publisher's business is, is very similar to like uh, the restaurant business, which is you have to create a great meal. Right. So like no one's going to come eat at your place unless you create a great meal, no matter how much signage you put up, no matter how many like world's best cup of coffee. Right. I'm using air quotes (laughs) like 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 the reason people show up and and come to your restaurant is because, yes, they love the environment and things like that. But they come because of the food. Right. And in, in, in the publisher's world, they come because of the content. It's the same thing. The food, the content. Right. It is. It's what what meal have you made for them? And what video have you made? What podcast have you made? What article have you made? What recipe have you made? What have you made, right? And so if you're any good at it, lots of people show up and they want to consume your content. And then that gives, that sort of unlocks the door to, hey, now I can actually, you know, make money here or, or capture some value. And there are a variety of ways to capture value. Advertising, as we've been talking about, is one of those ways. It, putting up a paywall or forcing people to subscribe, right, to access the content is another way to do it. We liked the commerce area, for instance. Like, so this is one of the reasons we bought the commerce products is we thought, hey, publishers, like really good, interesting publishers are talking about, you know, like what kind of home printer should you buy now that you're working from home? Where should you take your kids on vacation? Like, or what kind of, you know, case should you have for your, for your phone? You know, a gazillion different things. And you rely on that content to make a decision. I just bought like an electric chainsaw, which sounds weird, but like I bought an electric <laughs> chainsaw and I went, you know, I went to Home Depot and I'm like, what one should I buy? And Home Depot just like, they don't give you anything. There's no editorial there. Right. So then I go start seeking out editorial because that helps inform my decision. This is how we operate as people, which is why we got into the commerce business, which by the way, rivals in size now are ad business. And so, but now I'm watching people say, Hey, memberships actually take into account like all of that. And again, not mutually exclusive. A membership to me is there may be aspects of my site that is content that you you need to subscribe to get access to. And subscribe doesn't mean necessarily pay me, although it could. It could be, hey, join my, you know, join my my email newsletter and then in the newsletter you'll get extra, you know, you get access to some of this content. Or you'll be able to log in and you know, in, in exchange for that login information, which does help me, you know, with my addressability or with my measurement, it helps me understand. And so therefore I'm, you know, I'm willing to let you access some of that content. But memberships also include events that might be occurring and access to those events, whether virtual or, or in person. It, it might include access to discounts on products. So, hey, if you're a member, you get 20% off of all these retailers that I've secured things with, or maybe product launches that you, you get access to before, before the general public. It, I've seen it include insurance, access to insurance. So if you, hey, if you join, you know, this group, members get, you know, a certain level of insurance. Like so, cycling. I joined a, a group recently, and I got injury insurance. You know, in, in the, you know, in the case that that I crash on my bike. There's, you know, there's a lot of different aspects to to memberships. But, but I mean, all of this is under the umbrella of the relationship that you build with your visitors. 
and again, it also informs like, like, like I'm not like, I'm pretty easy to figure out here probably, but like it also informs, you mentioned why I bought the optimal ad blocking technology and we, we killed the ad blocker. But what I wanted was <laughs> I I wanted, I wanted engineers who knew how ad blockers were built so that I could understand what I believe is 20% of traffic on average to a publisher is invisible because of ad blocking. And it's not because of the publisher you're coming to. It's because of the lowest common denominator publisher that you went to. And so, I, you know, a, a person goes to a low common denominator publisher that plasters them with ads and auto audio crap and all that stuff, and they install an ad blocker. And now that ad blocker is sort of set and forget, and it's catastrophic to all of the other publishers who didn't do any of those things. And right. so, you know, part of the reason of making that acquisition, again, when I made that acquisition, at the time, it was like right in the rise of header bidding. Right. So remember, Rob, like maybe we talked at the IAB meeting, but like everyone was going crazy and making money hand over fist because of header bidding. And I was like the one person going, hey, like we're getting too obnoxious with ads and there's this huge thing called ad blocking. It, 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 it's a real thing. And publishers <laughs> that didn't do anything wrong are getting damaged by it. Like, it's just like, you just have to think beyond the first level. And, and it's pretty, you know, it becomes pretty, pretty obvious the kind of stuff that we do at Sauber. I, I like, I like the phrase lowest, con lowest common denominator websites. I, I tend to go like people go to websites and they go to the netherworld. They have bad experiences. That's where the ad blocking comes. And then of course affects everyone else. But I, I, I like your phrase better than the netherworlds or the, the, under, <laughs> the underpinnings of the, of the internet. It, yeah, uh, that's right. And you, that, that, at least that's what I, that's what we observed happening. And that's, that's, you know, that was part of the reason why I made that acquisition. And so let's, let's talk a little forward facing here because you talk about the two vectors it, it seems to me that even though there are these two vectors, publishers have to be good at both. They're going to have authenticated, they have an ability to create a relationship, which can become membership, which can grow as a business. You could take people there, but you also have to be better with the advertising. And we have to, we have to work on that particular front. That's hard. <laughs> that's hard for a publisher to, to, to work on all of those particular elements. Mm -hmm. And yet they have to, right? I think that that's the, that's the next piece to it. So how do you, with all the, the, the hundreds, if not thousands of publishers you work with, how is there, you can hear me pause as I sit there trying to even formulate what the question might be. Cause it, it's almost like, I'm not exactly sure where, where you might go with this, but the, the idea of what should publishers be doing on this particular front, right? Cause we want publishers just to create content, right? And some of them are best left to just do that, but there are publishers who are going to want to work this problem. They're going to want to understand the value of first party data. They're going to want to sit there and go like, how do I integrate e-commerce further and go out and sell engagement, right? That, right. There's levels of this, right? And I guess it's almost like you've placed bets and have built this platform. You've placed bets as to what technology to add to it. Where should publishers be placing their bets as they head into what I think is obviously very complicated times ahead in terms of exactly where publishers need to land? 
Yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a big question. You know, happy to come back and talk more if if your listeners are interested. But I guess here's here's sort of the way I, I think about it. I will say one thing. I don't know if it's a plug or not, but as you, as you may or may not know, we sponsor research, and you know we don't we don't look to gain you know necessarily anything out of it. But it, it's helpful to us and our thinking. When we just did one called through what's new in publishing and the University of Oregon, we did a research called navigating COVID. And in that, it has a lot of information about all these different areas, all data-driven. Uh, it's not a commercial in any way, shape, or form. And I would, you know, maybe we can get you access to the report, put a link on Beeler Tech or something like that. I don't know if you have show notes. Yeah, like we absolutely maybe, could do that. Maybe, maybe good. So, I mean, our, our, the way we think about it is our, our business, Sovereign's business, is to help, help our publisher customers understand their business operate their business and grow their business. And you can adopt any product from us or none, right? You can choose one, you can choose more, you can get out of it for any reason, you can end the relationship for any reason or for no reason. But the way we think about it is we're better together as a collective and we can certainly learn from each other. And we spend a lot of time, or at least I'm what, what we're doing now, sort of forward thinking of the company is we've been acquisitive buying really interesting product companies. We're going to continue to do that. I have a, I have a pretty, pretty exhaustive list of, of the interesting companies that I'm watching. In many cases, I'm talking to the CEOs on a regular basis. I've made two acquisition offers in the last six weeks, both of which I, you know, I wasn't able to get, but there's, you know, they just haven't sold. Doesn't mean they won't. It just means I got to keep talking to them for a while. You know, the, the way I guess I think about this is like the media business is really hard and it always has been, but it's incredibly rewarding and shortcuts never work. Like just putting a bunch of ads on your page doesn't work. It drives people away. Putting those crappy, you know, related content things that aren't really related content at the bottom of your post it might generate a few bucks, but it drives your readers away. And there's plenty of research to suggest this. If you really want to build a great commerce business or a great ad business, you got to run fewer ads and you've got to write co- commercial content that, that is an evergreen thing that shows up in organic SEO, right? You know, it, it's just... And so what I encourage publishers to do is just focus on the long game. Like just build stuff that people want. You can easily measure it. Like you can measure people want it. They spend time with it. They share it with their friends. They, you know, it, it's sort of like, like you've, you've ever heard of the metaphor, like, you know, it, if you keep building, you know, you keep putting a quarter in your pocket at some point in the future, you will put a quarter in your pocket that makes you rich, but it takes a long time to build up. At least that's how we, at least that's how we think about how we build our business. And, and so I'm, you know, I I think like I'll give you a, a for instance, maybe to close out on here. So, I believe this might be a little controversial. So, I believe that the the take rate. So, you know, taking twenty percent of your of your revenue and providing a service is a progressive tax, mm-hmm. and the, yet the entire industry does it. Right. And I think publishers do it because they're short sighted. If you, if you actually are long-sided, what you should be thinking about is most of these offerings that you get, particularly in the ad area, are actually fixed costs to deliver. So why would you allow someone to take a percentage take rate? 
Right. It means right. If, if I generate a dollar for, you know, a 50 cent ad that's 20% take rate, you just gave away what? Don't ask me to do the math that quick. <laughs> right? Right. So uh, a dollar ad, you 20% take rate, you gave away 20%. A $10 ad, a 20% take rate, you gave away $2. The 50 cent ad, the dollar ad, or the $10 ad cost the ad tech, FSP or exchange, the exact the same. same amount. So why do they do that? And I think like part of it is risk aversion on the publisher side. And part of it is, is the ad tech industry has just gotten away with it. So we're launching a product in the first quarter that doesn't do that. It is literally a, not a SaaS fee, but it's a flat rate ad product. And so if you, you know, if you make a dollar, you get charged 10 cents. If you make $2, you get charged, guess what? 10 cents. If you make $5, you get charged, guess what? 10 cents. 10 cents, right. And, and, and so like that is, I believe, hugely disruptive. What it does, though, is it, is it is exactly the economics of a platform company. So, you know, for if I make our publishers $5 and I keep a dollar, what I want to do is make the publishers $10 and I want to keep a buck 50. Or I want to make the publishers $20 and I want to keep $2. Like, if I can continue to grow the delta of where we're driving more revenue back to our publisher base, and, and, and our revenue continues to grow, but it grows at a slower rate, this is a mark of a platform company. And like I said, if you're already profitable and you already have many tens of thousands of customers on your, on your platform and multiple different products, you're in a position of luxury where you can continue to do that. And so this is, this is where we're going. Offer more products, more things more flat rate things that empower the publisher to continue to invest in long-term things that make a difference for their business. Walter, that's fantastic. I, I really appreciate that. I know we're close to the end of time. If I don't know if you have a hard stop. So Walter, one term that I've saw on your, on your Twitter feed that I just thought um, I wanted to hear more about, and it's not about ad tech. It's Everesting. Can you explain to me what Everesting <laughs> is? So, so you're talking about Everesting on on a bike, yes, cycling thing. All right. So I'll I'll go even even further. So Everesting, and then there's a thing called virtual Everesting. Okay. So Everesting is, and I forget the name of the group. There's a there's a group that is like sanctioned that does like sort of you know de, de facto sort of self sanctioned that measured it. But Everesting is the act of riding your bike uphill the equivalent of riding up Mount Everest in one day. So what people do is they find a hill and they basically go up and down that hill for, <laughs> I think the, the world record now is right around seven hours and they climb whatever that is, 29,000 feet, vertical feet. So, so, so Everesting is get on your bike, find a hill near your house and right. ride up and down it enough <laughs> times that you've accumulated 29,000 feet of vertical. And like I said, the pr a professional right now has it. The world record, I think, is right around seven hours. I think for a, for a normal human being, you're probably in the... I would probably be pushing closer to 24 hours if I could even do it. But even more sadistic than Everesting is virtual Everesting. So in this case, what people do is they get on a, on a stationary bike, on a right. bike trainer, in their house or whatever, in their garage or basement, and they ride effectively like they have these like, you know, things that simulate a grade and they ride uphill 
on a stationary bike with like 15 fans like pulling <laughs> on them for like eight, nine, ten hours. I mean, it's just crazy. But yeah, uh, and by yeah. the way, it's all it's all measured. You have to submit it and sanctioned, and there's a whole like if you do a web search on it, it's absolutely fascinating. So what's and this is a classic example of reading the headline without reading the article, right? So I saw the term, was absolutely fascinated, wanted to ask you about it, and of course, I came out of it going. I am totally going to be able to relate this to ad tech and where I thought it was going to go would be this idea. Like, again, you get over one mountain and then you get over the next. Cause when I think about like things like identity, it's hard for us to talk about what the future state is going to be because we don't know what's on the other side of the mountain that we're going to get to, right? If third-party cookies go away, what comes after that? It's harder to predict than you might think. So I had this whole analogy, but what you basically came back to me with is Everesting is this sadistic, I'm just going to set <laughs> my treadmill, I'm going to set my Peloton up to the max and just go for it until I get to the point of Everesting, which I guess there's a there's a, there's a a part of like uh, those of us who are in ad operations, those of us who do this every single day, I guess there's a little bit of like, we, we do get up every day and start all over again. So I guess there's an analogy there, but I'm now... But Rob, but like the, the, the um, there isn't, the, the, the coolest part about the media business is there isn't a finish line. You don't like write one article or record one video and be like, okay, I'm done. Like, or you write like a thousand and go, okay, I'm done. Like the reason people do it is because they're passionate about it because they're playing, they're playing the infinite version of it. Like the the game just keeps going. Like you keep engaging your readership, you keep creating new stuff, you keep doing new things. And if you can build a really interesting business doing that, like that, that, like that to me is interesting. You get up every morning and your feet hit the floor because you're excited about what you do. You do. Right. Right. And so then, and then that's just a matter of upping the challenge and so forth. All right. We'll, we'll go with that. We'll go with that because I, when you started to explain it, I was just, I was already in pain. So Walter, it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure to catch up with you and and uh, let's do this again. Cause again, I, I, uh, I appreciate your insights into how you're approaching your business. And I think that there's so many things there that like publishers need to be thinking about and, and everyone in the ad tech space and looking forward to what uh, you do in 2021. Sounds like you've got some interesting things planned. Yeah. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Walter for the conversation. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast and please create an account on Beeler.tech to keep up on all the industry-leading shenanigans we're putting together. And if you listened this far, thank you, Mom. I love you. Beeler out.